The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask, if you would, to take your Bibles. We'll be looking this morning at Matthew 11, concentrating on verses 25 through 27. For the third week, looking at the issue of divine sovereignty. Now, according to the book of Revelation, there is a throne in the center of heaven. There is a throne in the center of heaven. In Revelation 4, John was lifted up in the spirit. And in the spirit, he saw a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And it says, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold in their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And these are the seven spirits of God. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And so there in Revelation chapter 4, we have set before us, in the center of everything, a throne. And one who sat on it, this is God Almighty, who rules over all things. There is also set in the center of our hope of salvation, a throne as well, is there not? For it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, that since we have a great high priest, let us approach with confidence the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. A throne of mercy and of grace. And there is one seated on that throne as well, the same one, who dispenses mercy and grace. And my confidence and my hope in salvation is based on the sovereignty and the authority of the one seated on that throne of grace. But the question before us today as we read the newspapers and as we struggle with current events and issues in our lives is, yes, there's a throne in the center of heaven. Yes, there's a throne in the center of my hope of salvation. But is there a throne in the center of the affairs of earth? Is there one who rules over this turbulent, churning sea of events that we read about? And is there one seated on that throne who rules over all of it? Jesus addresses that in these verses, doesn't he? He addresses it. Because he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And that's enough for me. The same Lord who rules over heaven rules over earth. Even though somewhere on the earth today, now, there's a tyrant planning to slaughter thousands of people with weapons of mass destruction. Even though somewhere on the earth today, an old man will die without ever having heard the name of Jesus Christ. Even though somewhere on the earth today, a baby will be born infected with AIDS, caught from his mother. Even though people are starving and dying. Even though in our city... There's a Hispanic couple wondering how a mistake like that could have happened in this modern age. Even though there may be questions of a similar scope among people sitting in the pews today. Despite all of these things, there is a God who sits on the throne and rules over the events of earth. 
And that throne is what Christ praises God for today. And I want you to praise him for it too. I want you to be able to say, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, we've looked at this text. This is the third week that we've considered it. And over the next two weeks, God willing, the next two times that I preach, we'll be considering the end, probably the greatest invitation you're going to find anywhere in Scripture. But now we want to consider the flowing together of these mighty rivers of divine sovereignty and human responsibility for the third time. We've already seen human responsibility in verses 20 through 24. Christ denounces the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And when he proclaims over them, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. He's saying you are responsible for your failure to repent. Despite the miracles, despite the evidence that I gave you of my deity and of my kingdom, you did not repent. You just ignored me. And you are accountable. You are responsible. Woe unto you for your failure to repent. This is human responsibility. And then at the end of the text, which we'll look at more carefully next week, God willing, we see again human responsibility as the, as the Savior, like a shepherd, invites sheep to come into the fold. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is an invitation from a gracious king that we should throw down our weapons of rebellion and come back into the kingdom. Again, human responsibility. But in the center of this text... As we have seen in the center of heaven and the center of our hope of salvation, we have divine sovereignty. And what's so remarkable here is that it's all flowing from the lips of Jesus. And they flow together without any controversy, without any difficulty. They're all just side by side. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, we've already looked at a number of aspects of divine sovereignty. I'll just mention them briefly. We've seen divine power in the miracles that Jesus did. He's denouncing the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed. These were displays of divine power. Only God could do them. And everyone knew it. He would point to a, uh, a paralyzed man and say, your sins are forgiven. And they would be offended. And he would say, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, he said to the paralyzed man, rise and walk. And he did rise and walk. A display of divine power. Only God can forgive sins. And only God can say to a paralyzed man, rise and walk. And Jesus has this kind of power to forgive sins and to heal disease. And so we've seen divine power. We've also seen divine perception. Jesus said, if the miracles that had been performed in you, Chorazin Bethsaida, were performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Stop. How did he know that? Is he able to search hearts and minds? Is he able to know things that never will be? Yes, he is. Divine perception, something only God could know, Jesus knew. And that extends back 2,000 years in history to the city of Sodom, destroyed under the wrath of God for their wickedness and their perversion. Jesus said, if I had done these miracles there that city would still be here today. And so we see divine perception, supernatural knowledge of Gentile cities. Thirdly, we've seen divine prerogative. As a king, he makes choices. As a king, he has the authority to make them. He doesn't need to ask permission, and he doesn't apologize for what he does. He just decides. And he chose not to do miracles in Tyre and Sidon, like he did in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. 
This is his divine prerogative, and he exercised it, even though he was there in Tyre. And he did one small miracle there. He did not do the river of miracles and the display that he did in his hometown of Capernaum. And so we've seen divine prerogative. Fourthly, we've seen divine praise. It's a remarkable connection, isn't it? From verses 20 through 24 and then verse 25. It's a remarkable connection. He's dealing with the failure to repent of cities. Jewish cities who should have known better, who should have repented. He's dealing with unbelief. He's dealing with people who are going to go to hell. You, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You'll go down to Hades. You'll go down to the depths. He's dealing with the most dreary and the most despicable topic. And in the midst of that, in verse 25, he, said, he answered. The NIV lops it off, sadly. But there's two Greek words. He answers or responds and says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Oh, this is jarring to us and surprising. But it is his nature, his desire to praise his heavenly Father because he is a king who rules over all things. Divine praise. And then fifthly, divine position. I love these titles. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Side by side they are. A measurement, secondly, uh, in the second title of his sovereignty over all things. The same throne that rules in heaven rules over earth. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He's not a tribal deity. He's not localized. His jurisdiction doesn't end at a certain place. But it covers all of the earth. He is Lord of heaven and of earth. For he made it in six days. He is God over all things. He's also Father. Also a position or a title of authority, but also of endearment and of relationship, of love and compassion. A Father who cares for his children and who loves them. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And then sixthly, divine preference. In verse 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, on the one hand, and revealed them to little children, on the other. We dealt with that during the storm week. So those of you who are here and you're hearing it again, hear it again. Those of you who weren't here last week, listen perhaps for the first time. Our sovereign God conceals and reveals And Jesus praises him for both. I praise you, Father, because you conceal. And I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you reveal. It's not a big challenge for us to rejoice in the second. We love a God who's self-revealing. We want to know God. We want to see him in his glory. And so God does reveal himself. Talk more about that in a moment. But he also conceals. He conceals, it says, from the wise and learned. And he reveals them to little children. Now, we talked about this last time. There's nothing wrong with being wise. As a matter of fact, there's a whole book in the scripture, the book of Proverbs, which praises wisdom. But I don't think it's the same kind of wisdom that Christ is dealing with here. This is human wisdom, human knowledge, human academia, the intellectual pursuits of the human mind apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Seeking out the deep things of the universe. Seeking out their conceptions of God. They will never find him. Not that way. For God has concealed himself from those kinds of inquiries and will never be found that way. For since in the wisdom of God, God through his wisdom did not decide to reveal Christ that way. But rather only to those who humble themselves. To those who are meek and lowly. To the lowly of heart. You have revealed them to little children. To those who will humble themselves, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you are converted and become like little children, you will never enter 
the kingdom of heaven. And so he praises God for the concealing and he praises God for the revealing. And this is his divine preference. Seventh, divine pleasure. All things that God does, he does according to his pleasure. He's not under compulsion. He's not forced. He's not coerced. He's not irritable or out of sorts. He knows what he's doing when he sits on the throne. Aren't you glad? Don't you delight in a God who knows what he's doing and who does what he pleases in heaven and on earth and under the earth? This is a God of pleasure. And in the end, our heavenly joy is tied up in the pleasure of God. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Now enter into the joy of your master. Now what kind of heaven would it be if there were no such thing as the joy of our master? Oh, but he has much joy. He has much pleasure. He knows what he's doing. And he's ruling over all things for his glory. And so he says, enter into my pleasure. Enter into what it, what it feels like to be totally one with yourself. Without any division anymore over sin. I'm looking forward to that. Aren't you? Looking forward to being as one as the Father and the Son are one. And not just by myself, but with all who have believed and trusted him. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. But he does all things according to his pleasure. He rules according to his pleasure. Even if his pleasure is a little shocking and surprising to us sometimes. Would we ever have arranged a gospel in which the second person in the Trinity died on a wooden cross? Would you have done that? It is not our way. His ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. And so he has pleasure in the death of his son pleasure in crushing him on the cross not in the thing itself in the, in the suffering and the pain but rather in the joy that's set before him in the end result in a perfect new heaven a new earth a home of righteousness which his death alone can accomplish oh he has pleasure in that so we've looked at those things that's a whirlwind review of the first seven now let's look God willing at the last three divine presentation the Father commits the universe to the Son. Now, in, verses, in verse 27, whereas Jesus was praising his Father for divine sovereignty, so he's praying it up to God in a prayer. He's giving thanks for it. Here, he's instructing us about it. He's talking to us about it. He's instructing us about sovereignty. And he says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. Stop there. This is divine presentation. All things have been committed to me. He is claiming here dominion over the entire earth. This is a remarkably shocking claim if Jesus is not deity. If he's not God in the flesh. What kind of person would say, I want you to know that God has entrusted the entire world, the whole universe, to me? That's scary, isn't it? What would you do if you knew somebody like that? Do you know the number that you'd have to call? I don't know the number, but there must be a number to call. If you meet somebody like that who says all things have been entrusted to me by my father. Okay, but Jesus is God. And this is a true statement. He never utters a word lightly. And all things have been given to me. God has entrusted. Now, this word committed in the NIV is really handed over. Entrusted is a good way to put it. They've been surrendered to me. They've, hand, they've been handed over. Entrusted is a good word. I like that. And it's interesting. He's talking about dominion over the earth. This is the very thing that the devil claimed, isn't it? In Luke 4, when he was tempting Jesus, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. Oh, the devil's such a liar, isn't he? 
What a liar. Oh, yes, he's God of this world, but it's temporary, isn't it? Jesus brushed it aside and said, I'm going to get it anyway. But not from you. I'm going to get it from my Father. He's going to entrust it to me. All things. And why? Because Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. It belongs to God, not to the devil. So don't be deceived when the devil promises you the world. He can't deliver. But God has entrusted, it says, all things to the Son. Now, what has he entrusted? Well, everything to do with the universe has been entrusted in Christ's hands. All authority, said Jesus, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. It says in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He's also entrusted or committed to him the authority to forgive sins. As we've already mentioned in Matthew 9, 6, he said over that paralyzed man, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He also has the authority to judge sinners. In John chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted, he has committed all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. So all judgment has been entrusted to Jesus, and that's what it reflects in Matthew 25. The sheep and the goats, he's going to gather all nations before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And why? He has the right to do it. It's been entrusted to him by his Father. He also has the authority to rule over God's enemies for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Then the end will come when he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Someday he's going to destroy death. I look forward to that. But it's the last enemy. We're not there yet. But he will someday do it. And so all things have been committed. But especially here, I believe, it is people who have been committed to him. People. Elsewhere called the elect or the chosen of God. Many times in the book of John, it speaks of people who are given from the Father to the Son. Have you ever wondered about those passages before? Listen to what it says in John 6, 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given to me, but shall raise them up at the last day. Also in John 10, in the Good Shepherd passage, he says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. John chapter 10. And then in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, after this, Jesus looked up to heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Listen now, this is very important. John 17, 2. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those whom you have given him. Work that through sometime. But there are people entrusted to Jesus. It's in effect the Father says, here are people. Take care of them. They're precious to me. Bring them to heaven. Die for them. 
Pour out your blood that their sins might be forgiven. Keep them safely the rest of the way and bring them to me so that I may have eternal fellowship with them. I've entrusted them to you. Bring them to me. All things have been committed to me by my Father. And then in John 17, verse 6 and 7, he says, I revealed, those, revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Isn't that beautiful? Stop right there. Just realize what we're saying. If you are a Christian, you are a love gift from the Father to the Son. The Son sees you as something that's been committed or entrusted to Him. He will not lose any of you. You are precious to him, and he will protect you with his life. In fact, he's willing to pour out his life that you might be protected from wrath. This is the sovereign God that we have. All things have been committed to me by my Father. Isn't that beautiful? Next, number nine, divine privacy. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. What an incredible statement. Verse 27, do you see it? No one knows the Son. You say, well, wait a minute now. I know a lot of things about Jesus. I mean, I know that he was born in Bethlehem. I know that he did such and such miracles. I know that he never sinned. I know his mother's name. I know his, his stepfather's name. Uh, I know a lot of things. I could take a theology exam on Jesus. Yes, but do you know him? The Greek word is epigenosko. It means a full, complete, rich, relational knowledge. Do you know him? Well, Jesus already answered the question. You don't know me. Not yet. Not yet. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And it's an amazing thing because Jesus, in effect, says the goal in in Scripture, we know the goal and the treasure of which there's no greater value in the universe is knowing God. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord. That's what you should boast over. That should be your treasure. Now, it may be that you have something precious to you. Maybe it's an heirloom that was committed to you by a grandmother or grandfather. Maybe it was a pocket watch or something precious. Handed down from generation to generation, maybe a piece of artwork. Maybe you would boast over your education or your accomplishments or your physical strength or your athletic ability. Nothing compares to knowing God. Nothing. And Jesus said, you don't know me and you don't know my father. That's what he's saying. And why is this? Well, this is the essence of our life, isn't it? This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom we have sent. So eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. But we don't, not naturally. And why? Well, Isaiah 45, 15. Please write that verse down. Isaiah 45, 15. It says there, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. Really? Our God is a God who hides himself? Well, that's what it says. You are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. Many times in the Psalms, the psalmist struggles with this, doesn't he? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? Do you experience this in your Christian life? Or do you have unbroken face-to-face fellowship with God now here on earth? Of course you don't. Because God is a God who hides himself, even to his children. 
David wrestled with this. He struggled. He was not in constant face-to-face fellowship with God. God was concealing himself somewhat. And so God, therefore, does hide himself, even from his children. And he hides himself from rebels and from the wicked because of their sins. He will not hear their prayers because their sins have separated him from them so that he will not hear. He has hidden his face from them. This is the problem. And so the whole thing started with Adam and Eve hiding from God. But it is God who hides his face from us. He conceals himself and will not reveal himself unless he wills. Now, the father knows his son, doesn't he? Oh, he delights in his son. Do you remember when he was baptized? A voice came down from heaven saying, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Oh, I know him very well. And I love him. I delight in him. And the son knows his father, doesn't he? John 17, 25. Righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And so the son knows the father and the father knows the son. And no one can get any further in knowing God than God wills. Do you realize that? You can't up and know God if he does not reveal himself. You can't search him out. You'll never find him unless he reveals himself. Praise God for number 10. Praise God it didn't stop there. Number 10 says, divine privilege, the son chooses to reveal the father to some. What does it say in verse 27? No one knows the father except the son and... Stop there. Do you see that little word and? Aren't you glad for it? You say, I didn't think and was that big a deal. Oh, it's a big deal. Because God could have stopped there. He could have said, no one knows the son except the father... And no one knows the Father except the Son. End of story. Whole human race go to hell. He could have done it. Don't think he couldn't have. He did it with the demons. They don't know God. They tremble, but they don't know him. But he adds the word and. Praise God that there are some among us who will know God face to face. Some among us who will know the Son savingly. No one knows the Father except the Son and those people to whom the Son chooses or wills to reveal Him. I think it's incredible. You should be, if you're a child of God right now, just praising God that He has willed to reveal Himself to you. If you know yourself well enough to say, that's astounding to me, that God would open Himself up to someone like me, especially when I sell it so cheaply, when I think so little, really, of knowing God. It's really not that big a deal for me to know God. Oh, yes, it is. It's eternal life. And God knows that even if you don't fully. And so he is revealing himself to you. God sent his son into the world to reveal himself. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. That's revelation language, isn't it? He's shining out God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. After he died on the cross for sinners like you and me, he sat down. And that's where he reigns, he rules from. And so, in John 14, verse 6 and following, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Isn't that incredible? From that point on, we know him and we have seen him. Philip didn't get it, did he? Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. 
Oh, Philip, have I been with you all this time and you don't know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you see that? And so the Son chooses to reveal. Now, the Son does make a choice in this matter. He does. Is that hard for you to accept? The Greek is clear. Bulamai is the, is the verb. It's he wills, he chooses to reveal. He has a decision in this matter and he's a king. Not everyone gets the same revelation. Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum got something different than Tyre and Sidon did. And individuals like Simon Peter get something different than Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum. Do you remember in Caesarea Philippi he said, who do the people say I am? Jesus asked this question. Oh, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered for all believers for all time at that moment. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? You finally figured it out, Peter, through your careful and strict inquiries. Not at all. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And so he chooses to reveal himself savingly so that we may know him. Matthew 11 forever removes the false assumption that Christ must and does reveal the Father equally to everyone. Sodom got no healing miracles, only wrath and judgment. Tyre and Sidon got one healing miracle, but not leading to their repentance. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum got the incarnate Son of God living in their hometown, but not Simon Peter's revelation. Simon Peter got revelation unto salvation, and he's in heaven now. Now, what kind of application can we take from this? Well, many, many. First of all, be humbled. This is a humbling doctrine, isn't it? Brings us to our knees. Makes us realize we can't up and get to heaven. There's no stairway to heaven we can erect or construct ourselves. The doctrine has a powerful work of humbling the soul. And as I said last week, so I say again, be one of those little children to whom God reveals all things. Secondly, be incredibly joyful. Realize that if the Son has revealed the Father to you and the Father is revealing the Son to you, and if you're his sheep, you are given to Christ, you realize nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth will separate you from the love of God and that you will be saved and go to heaven. Be incredibly joyful. You have already won what there is to win in this world, eternal life. You have the faith that overcomes the world. Be, thirdly, expectant. There's more yet to know about God. You realize you don't know everything there is to know about God yet? Do you realize even when you die, you will not immediately know everything there is to know about God? It's not a static place, heaven. And you will not become infinite beings. And so listen to this. John 17, 25 and 26. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you sent me. Now listen. John 17, 26. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. That's forever, brothers and sisters. He's going to be revealing and revealing and revealing the Father forever and ever. Do you think you're going to be bored in heaven? You will not. Every day, new discoveries of God. Fourthly, while here on earth, can I urge you, be seeking God constantly Sometimes God will hide himself from you. And you know why? Because your heart is prone to wander and go off into idols so that you don't prize the love and and knowledge of God properly. And God wants to strip that from you. He wants to wean you off it. 
And so he will pull back from you. And at that point, you know what you need to do? Stop everything else and pursue God. Seek him with all diligence, even with fasting and prayer. Psalm 27, verse 7 through 9 says, Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Hide not your face from me. That should be the cry of every child of God in this place. Your heart speaking to you. Seek his face. Seek his face. Seek him. Seek him. Seek him. And I will seek. Please don't hide your face from me. Don't make it too hard for me today because I'm just flesh and blood. Be sorrowful. Genuinely grieving over the cities and individuals that hear this message and don't repent. You realize probably in this room there are people who are hearing this message and yet have not nor will repent. What was Paul's reaction to that in Romans 9? I speak the truth in Christ. My conscience testifies to it. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my own people, the Jews. Be sorrowful over those who hear this and do not repent. Be steadfast doctrinally. Christ is the only Savior. Is there anyone else who can reveal the Father to us than Jesus? Do you realize this doctrine is under attack these days? In our own city, there is a Baptist pastor who stood up and preached to his congregation that Christ is not the only way to God. The analogy he used was of uh, underground river and many wells going down and water coming up out of each well. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever. Right in our own city. False doctrine. Be very careful. There is only one way to God and it is Jesus Christ. Be consistent in repentance. Realize that as you hear this preaching, just like Ezra, you're going to feel conviction of sin. God's going to uncover it. Repent. Be glad to repent and be rid of those things that are hiding God from you. Be evangelizing constantly. Go out. All authority in heaven and earth has been given him. Go and preach this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, so that people can find out who the true king is, Jesus Christ. Speak to your neighbors, your co-workers, other students. Speak to them about Christ, that they might have eternal life. Delight in God's sovereignty as much as he does. Realize that that frees us from anxiety over the upcoming war. Frees us from anxiety over disease, over medical errors done by famous hospitals. Freed from anxiety over the future because God is sovereign. And then finally, come to Christ. If you don't know the Lord, if you've never come to faith in Christ... How could you possibly walk out of this room, out of this message, without repenting and yielding? As Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.